The Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast is sponsored by Prairie Care. You know, going through the process of getting help with your mental health can be very overwhelming. I definitely know that from firsthand experience. Prairie Care can help guide you through it and get you in touch with the help that you need. They've been offering mental health services to all ages in the Twin Cities of Minnesota since 2005. Whether you're looking for clinical services, a specialty outpatient program, or a more intensive level of care like inpatient treatment, Prairie Care has you and your family covered. Visit prairie-care.com to learn more. That's prairie-care.com. Hello, my friends, and welcome here into this episode of the Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast. My name is Brian Pyatt, and I am your host, and so grateful that you are carving out some time in your day to listen and to spend some time with us here on on the podcast. Today, we have a a very, very, very important conversation that that we are going to be having. And, um, you know, I, uh, I I live in the the Twin Cities of Minnesota, the, the Minneapolis St. Paul area, and, and and this topic especially has been very 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 much at the forefront over the last several years, and I know this is also at the forefront nationally and and globally right now. And and extremely important that that we are are talking about this topic, this this subject on on any platform. I think where we're where we're talking about mental health, we are going to be focusing on, on on this episode about mental health within the BIPOC community. Um. BIPOC for for anybody that that maybe isn't familiar with the, that term, I know a lot of you are, but um, that represents Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And and, and I want to really just right off the bat acknowledge and just name that I am a white male, and very much not well versed to be able to pretend like I know what those challenges feel like and, and what those challenges are within the BIPOC community. And so I, I come into this conversation today in this episode with, with an immense amount of white privilege. And, and I've been doing my best to learn more and more about that, especially over, over the last several years. And joining me on this, this episode today is Dr. Asfia Cotter. Dr. Cotter is a child and adolescent psychiatrist with Prairie Care, which is a mental health organization clinic in the Twin Cities. And Dr. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Cotter is the clinical consultant to diversity, equity, and inclusion at Prairie Care. So so deeply entrenched in having conversations around this within 
within Prairie Care. And the, the, this conversation today, especially timely with it being Black History Month um, in the Twin Cities, the recent death of Amir Locke, and I, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for for Dr. Cotter being willing to come on the podcast and 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 at least open up the door to to some of these conversations. So in in this episode, we talk about a number of things. This is a bit of a longer episode. I really wanted to make sure that we gave space and time to to really allow this conversation to. Um, to be given the time that it deserves. And Dr. Cotter talks about things like inequities within the healthcare system, how impl- uh, Im- implicit bias can show up within the therapeutic setting, um, establishing trust within the BIPOC community when it comes to mental health therapy, and, and much more. So, with that, I am going to just go ahead and toss it over to this conversation with with Dr. Cotter, and and I hope that this conversation in some way serves you out there. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time to to connect with us here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I think. I'm hoping to have a very fruitful and uh, exciting uh, conversation about really important uh, things that are going on in our community today. Yeah, and this is obviously a really broad topic, very um, complex topic, and so I think probably really important for us to maybe just acknowledge off the top that um, th- this can be kind of a heavy one, right, to, to really dive into. Yes, I think, um, you know, I've done talks and presentations on some of these topics and it never um, it never stops feeling the same heaviness yeah. um, you know part of that heaviness is the responsibility that comes with um, addressing these topics and there's a big part of it that's also very heavy because the content is so heavy and there's a gravity that goes with it and so I think for people listening there are going to be points at which, you know, for the listeners out there, you might feel your body even tensing up. Mm. You might recognize that your own thoughts start, you know, going to your own personal experiences. And that's a very real way to connect with this material. And so I usually start presentations and talks with a reminder for folks to do self-care while you are listening. Mm. Um, you know, and that you have that permission to step away yeah. when you need to or do some grounding techniques right where you're sitting or standing. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a really nice thing, too, that this is recorded yeah. so that if you feel the need to, you can step away and then revisit it and not have missed content. I, I want to, before we dive into some of those topics, um, to give people just a, a sense of your background um, your, your cultural background. Um, can you fill us in on that a little bit? 
I don't know, a little bit because little bit. it's such a loaded question. <laughs> you could do um, it in about 30 seconds. Absolutely. That would be great. So, I no, mean, I'm I think kidding, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, cultural, you know, we're learning what these what this word means in so many layers. Yeah. And I was thinking about this um, earlier today that you know, there's a layer of my identity that definitely has to do with being born and brought up in the Midwest. Yep. Um, there's definitely a layer that has to do with ethno-linguistically coming from um, a family from India. Mm. Um, spiritually, I identify with Islam. And, you know, you put that together with life experiences. You, there's also a professional cultural yeah. identity that I have as a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Um, and then, of course, there's the the hip-hop phase and the grunge phase and the yeah. alternative rock phase that, you know, that's all part of our culture, you know, growing up. Um, and I was just reflecting that all of these elements find expression today. Mm. You know, it's a, it's really a, a mixture of all these different layers of identity. Um, and and so it's an interesting question. You it know. is. Where are you from? Um, what's your cultural background? Yeah, yeah, it's multi-layered for sure. What particular mental health struggles are, are you seeing within the the? BIPOC community, and then for our listeners that maybe have never heard that term, Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, are, are there certain things that, that you're seeing where, where like there's a real there's a real struggle happening? You know, I think it's something that has always been true, but people are more aware of it now. We're talking yeah. about it more, um, especially in context of a lot of the trauma that our communities have experienced. Um, that have made national news over the last couple of years. Yeah. You know, I think people are talking more about the historical roots of trauma and the current experience of trauma within our communities. And so I think that's a very complicated topic, you know, the one of trauma. Yeah. And one of the challenges, you know, you're asking about what are we doing? What are we working towards changing in terms of clinical care? Mm -hmm. And I keep coming back to this idea that we need to reframe how we approach understanding our patients, whether we want to call it clinical assessment, diagnostic evaluation, what have you. I think a lot of us, especially in the healthcare professions, we are not trained to understand the historical roots of healthcare inequities. We're not trained necessarily to know the complexities that are part of racial trauma. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we're not going to assess that. We're not going to diagnose it appropriately. And of course, we're not going to then be able to address it. Yeah. And we're missing a lot. And so when we look at BIPOC communities, uh, people have so many varied experiences, but one of the common denominators is a history of trauma, mm -hmm. transgenerational trauma specifically. And we need to do better in recognizing what that is and how we go about healing. Yeah. And it's, and I, and I would imagine, right. It's such a, um, things like historical racial trauma. Um, I mean, obviously I'm 
I think it's probably very important to point out I'm, I'm a, a white male. Like I can't even begin to, like I, I come into this conversation with an immense amount of white privilege. And so I, I can't relate in any way, shape or form, obviously to what that feels like. Um, but I, I would imagine, I mean, this is, it's such a complex topic when we dive into things like racial trauma. Um, and there, and, and there maybe aren't these like, very clear cut ways of how we start chipping away at it. Is that an accurate statement? No, I think a lot of people are beginning to learn. Yeah, um, and yeah. and it, it's, it's an interesting thing where you have this dynamic where a lot of the community know what that is intrinsically. Sure. Cause that is life. That's how it's been. Yeah. Um, and then you have this, you know, um, intellectual approach to try mm-hmm. to conceptualize it um, uh, within healthcare, let's say, and to try to understand how do we assess for it, mm-hmm. um, how do we recognize it, you know, when we're working with a patient, how do we ask about that, yeah. um, and then what do we do to one do no further harm, mm-hmm. um, because part of that trauma comes from within the healthcare. Uh, system itself if you look historically at the roots um and two to help that person start to heal um and that is relational work um and so i think we're getting a better understanding now that you really can't participate and be part of society be part of that fabric of society and think you're disconnected from that process yeah even those of us who think oh you know i don't identify having, you know, the experience of, you know, racial trauma, I think it's something that is very multi-layered and everybody's a participant in some way. If you're participating in, in society, you're participating in that system that uh, keeps it going. Yeah. And so I think those are really difficult mirrors to look into, <laughs> um, but it's an honest approach and I don't know that we can really get to healing without doing that. Yeah. You've, you've talked a little bit about like inequities or um, things within the actual healthcare system, which I would imagine also includes mental health treatment and mental health care over the years. Absolutely. Um, without, you know, I'm sure there's obviously a lot to that topic, but what are some of the ways that, that, our, that our healthcare system or our mental health treatment over the years in this country have potentially led to some of these issues that we're talking about. Yeah. And I think you, you touched on a very broad topic there. Um, you can, you know, consider the role that psychiatry itself had, um, in terms of at some points in history, reinforcing and supporting the institution of slavery. You know, that happened through very specific diagnoses that were canonized in the DSM. Mm. Um, That happened through the use of asylums um, and the abuses that went on within those walls. And it happened, you know, in the form of, you know, things that were explicit when you look at the history in terms of the racism. You know, it's a thing to consider how th- that has transformed into implicit bias today. Mm. Um, whether you look at the effect on um, 
you know, patients who identify as African-American and black not being given adequate pain management in a hospital setting. This is something that's well known. But when you look back at the roots, it's, it's, um, it's factual. It's there. It's in the DSM. Mm. Descriptions clinically that black bodies don't feel pain in the same way that white bodies do. Mm. Right? Um, so there's a historical element in that regards. Um, as well, if you look at the history of settler colonialism, and we're talking about indigenous communities, Native American families, um, you know, those policies of extermination that then turned into boarding schools and cultural genocide. And I think what people don't um, have a good understanding of is that the legacy of boarding schools is a very, um, you know, current, current um, issue. It's not something that happened in a certain period of time and stopped. You know, Mm -hmm. we still have boarding schools. Um, And I think it wasn't until more recently in the last generation even that we're talking about it more openly. And these were specific policies that focused on separating children as young, in, as young as four or five years old from their families by federal law um, and removed hundreds of miles away to what were termed residential mm-hmm. facilities. Okay. Yep. And, you know, fast forward to today, we have mental health care facilities that are residential facilities. You know, we have a broken health care system where when a child is in a crisis in the emergency room, there's not a bed available for them to go to for maybe a couple hundred miles away, maybe out of state. And it's a very real thing. And listeners are going to identify with this if you've been in this situation. As a parent, you have to make that agonizing choice that, yes, my child is going to get the medical care they need, and they have to be temporarily separated from Mm -hmm. me. You know, family separation is a very real fear that, people have to contend with when they're making that decision for their child to get either mental health care in a hospital setting or a day treatment program, residential, et cetera. So it's all connected. You've said the word implicit bias before. Um, How do you, how do you describe what that, that, is for for any listeners that I I know we we hear that term a lot, but if there's anybody out there listening that maybe doesn't have a full understanding of kind of what you're talking about around that, um, can you elaborate? Absolutely. You know, I think if you're a human being, it means you have a whole set of experiences that have influenced you and made you who you are. Yeah. You know, your interactions with your environment, family, community, Uh, perceptions of the world you live in, your own experiences of how the world works. Um, And no one of us has, you know, all knowledge of everything. And so if you are human, you have implicit biases. I think that's the first step of realization. Um, We all have different ones, perhaps. But, you know, those are like blind spots um, that in a healthcare setting, for example, can lead to causing harm to a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one, one way of thinking about it is 
patients get treated differently, you know, by the same clinician. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the reason why people have discrepancies in their health care and sometimes outcomes then because of that gets traced back to something that's pretty intangible. Mm -hmm. You know, a clinician who hasn't done the work to um, understand their own blind spots is not going to be able to recognize, you know, yeah. why I delayed a diagnosis or I overdiagnosed this particular patient population with a given diagnosis compared to others. Why am I quicker to dismiss this patient from care than that one? Mm -hmm. Why do I spend 40 minutes with one, one patient and barely 15 minutes with another? Uh, these are some concrete examples. Yeah. Um, but implicit bias is something that everybody has. And in the healthcare setting, implicit bias can lead to misdiagnoses, inappropriate treatments, and poor outcomes. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I've heard a lot of, I don't have any statistics directly in front of me, but I've heard a lot of things along the lines of people in minority communities, BIPOC community are, are often not, they don't have access to the same mental health resources that um, potentially other cultural backgrounds do. Um, is that true? Are you finding that to be true? That's a complicated question. I think it's true, right? I think the, the, the conversation around, you know, why is that true? You yeah. know, what plays into that is really important. There's a part of that um, that has to do with, you know, representation. Uh -huh. um, you know, I'll backtrack for a second and, and just make a, a point that in our society, everything is connected. So a person who has access to stable employment will have access to safe housing. A person who has access to safe housing will have access to better health care options. Uh, better schools, um, and, you know, so on and so forth. You know, when we look at Minnesota in particular, we have the largest racial gap when it comes to student achievement scores in the nation. Um, and when you look at the, um, the housing sector, for example, you know, one of the core ways of achieving financial security in our country is home ownership. And in Minnesota, we have the largest racial gap of home ownership in the nation, mm. right? And again, these things are all connected. So for folks who are disenfranchised in one area, they become vulnerable in the other areas. Mm -hmm. And that includes access to healthcare. Yeah. We saw in the pandemic, for example, one of the big things that people started talking about was people losing their access to healthcare because they weren't able to sustain jobs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people lost insurance or various ways that people got disenfranchised. Um, so that's one piece, the systemic element. Mm -hmm. um, another piece as to why, you know, uh, BIPOC communities don't have the access, you know, on par with the dominant majority culture, it has to do with trust mm. and it has to do with stigma. And for all the reasons that we were talking about earlier in terms of the, the historical roots, there are very concrete and recent examples of abuses within the healthcare system towards BIPOC patients, yeah. right? And so 
there is a lot of um, distrust. So if you think about it, imagine you know a patient comes to the clinic for the first time, and you have to remember, right, what that journey was to get to that point. You know, a lot of people have been struggling with mental health concerns for a long time before they're able to come to that clinic um, appointment. And so despite distrust, despite stigma, despite all the different barriers, you know, finally that person gets to the clinic. Think how important that first meeting is, right? Um, And I always try to remember that, you know, if the patient is there in the room with you, then no matter what else is in that space, that person has brought some hope. Mm. They have a sense of hope and there's a responsibility in that space on the part of the clinician to recognize that, Mm. that it's taken a lot to get here and this person is there because they have a sense that this could work. Mm -hmm. Let's give it a try. Um, And so that just speaks to some of the, 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 the stigma, the, the historical roots that lead to distrust, especially when BIPOC communities um, who have experienced different, uh, very negative experiences um, within mental health care, that people are still willing to seek out care. That's mm. a big deal. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the big barriers I see to people getting into uh, mental health care, just the history um, and then the other thing I think about is representation. Yeah. So imagine you finally get to that clinic door and you come into the office and you sit down and, you know, one of the first questions you get asked is, oh, your name is so interesting. Where are you from? Oh, you know, that it's just, it's awful. Yeah. Um, or, or perhaps, you know, you are asked a question about, um, Oh, so, you know, for example, it, it, it happens for Muslim women a lot, mm-hmm. you know, the stereotypes and, 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 and that, you know, Muslim men, men are violent. Mm-hmm. And I think in the black community, you have this too. Black men are violent, right? These are all these tropes. And this is where implicit bias becomes so damaging because you can sit there in a clinic appointment, you know, it could be primary care, it could be psychotherapy, it could be whatever. Mm-hmm. And you are on the receiving end of these tropes through the implicit bias of your clinician. Mm. Um, and you're not likely going to come back to that person, yeah. right? You're not likely going to talk to that person and tell them what's going on. They have not earned your trust. Yeah. Um, and that's how we do more harm in the healthcare field through implicit yeah. bias. And a lot of times these providers have no idea they're even doing it. Right. Absolutely. Those are the okay, blinders. Those are the blind spots. It, yeah. It's, like, it's very, I would imagine, very well-intentioned people that are contributing to this distrust. I mean, there's a naivety, right? Yeah. And so I think those of us who would like to be responsible clinicians need to first accept that we have biases. Mm. And we need to check those biases. Mm. Um, and so that's where you look at your own life experience, your own clinical training, and... Look at it from a, cl- a, a critical um, uh, angle to see where am I not getting exposure to certain communities? Where am I ignorant about certain mm. uh, traditions? Um, what are my own 
deeply held personal beliefs about a particular group of people that I think I'm leaving at the door when I come to work every day. But let's be real. You can't really do that. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I know I'm in I'm in grad school to become a therapist potentially down the road. I know, um, obviously, I know other people in that process as well. And and it's this speaks to so much the the importance of doing the work as an individual entering this field. To um, obviously, we're all going to carry our own implicit bias into that therapeutic relationship. And yet, I mean, what you're saying speaks so deeply to the importance of doing the work on ourselves first, yeah. right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think when I was talking about looking in the mirror, you know, that takes a lot of um, courage, it, but it, it, that's, that's the call. Yeah. You know, if we are going to be doing work that, you know, impacts other people in a very deeply personal way, I don't know that there's another way of doing that kind of work responsibly and ethically. Mm. The other thing this conversation makes me think about is that notion of representation. Yes. Um, you know, we talked earlier about how in our society everything is connected. And, you know, physicians have this conversation, um, uh, you know, among ourselves quite often about the idea of we need to be mentoring and supporting youth who have an interest in, you know, higher education, opportunities for intellectual pursuits. Um, opportunities for experiences that will help them get into grad school. Mm-hmm. You know, when we look at young people and their educational opportunities, it's tied to where they live, and where they live, where they live, is tied to other things that are not in their control. And so, when we think about what is the impact of you know systemic inequities, mm-hmm. um, it's in the clinic. Yeah. You know. Who is able to wear that badge and be a clinician? Who is able to go into healthcare? Um, and and when a patient goes to seek out care, they may never encounter somebody who you know has a similar um, life experience than they do when it comes to you know, these big broad categories. Mm-hmm. Granted, everybody is different, but there should be um, increased representation of BIPOC clinicians, especially within mental health care. Something too. I know that we, we've kind of we talked about a little bit while we weren't recording um, prior to this. How, how 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 do you categorize the importance of of in the therapeutic relationship in mental health settings in this space, being able to talk to your your clients, your patients about racial trauma, and and say words like implicit bias or you know, some of the things that we've talked about, just introducing those mm-hmm. words into the space. Why, why is that important if you feel that it is? I mean, I think that when a patient comes to, you know, a clinician's office or is meeting their therapist for the first time, perhaps I'll, I'll use the example of psychiatrist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in my role, for example, I'm very aware that I have not earned the patient's trust just because they made an appointment. Mm. You know, I don't know the process that went into that. I don't know their journey, of what it took to get here. You know, sometimes I will know something of the story that within the community, somebody, you know, trusted me and recommended, you know, somebody who's hesitant otherwise. But a lot of times that isn't the case and people are taking um, a risk. 
And so they don't, you know, a patient doesn't know me. And unless I bring certain, um, certain things into that space between us, the patients aren't going to bring it in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in mental health, for example, we have, have so much that we talk about with patients that make people very uncomfortable. You know, we talk about drugs, we talk about suicide, we talk about loss, we talk about so many difficult things, we talk about trauma, suffering. Um, you know, and we also talk about resilience and joy, and there's so much that's very personal that we talk about. Um, but unless we start that conversation, uh, patients don't know that, oh, there's space for this too in this, you know, in this clinic. And I think also that respects the fact that in a lot of people's experiences, there hasn't been space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to take responsibility for that as clinicians that patients have learned not to bring in certain things. Yeah. You know, what part of myself do I have to leave at the door before I come to see my therapist mm-hmm. or before I come to see my you know, doctor? Um, and so those are realities that we need to be cognizant of because we are going to then intentionally change the way we are interacting with our patients. Yeah. So for example, when I'm doing my standard conversation around medication management and, and how I think about that, my first conversation on it is, is always specifically to, to, to tell you know, the person, like, do not feel like you need to make a decision today. That's not what today's conversation is. We're just talking about values. And I say the word values. Um, and I want to know, you know, family's experiences. You know, have you ever had an experience with loved ones or somebody you knew where their mental health care uh, process went well or it didn't go well or medications were not helpful or, you know, anything? Mm-hmm. And that's an invitation for people to bring in their stories, yeah. bring in their truth. And in that, I can hear resilience if they've had bad experiences and they're telling me this is what I'm worried about moving forward. Mm. I need to know that as a clinician. Um, I need to know where someone's been. Um, And so in that space, I also share openly, this is how I think about medications. I'm very transparent in my process because there's this artificial power hierarchy that happens in 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 that space between the doctor and the patient for example and it's counter therapeutic and so i actually will say you know you are the expert in your symptoms and in your life experience um for parents you know your kid better than i do um but i know the science i know the medical aspect of things i can tell you from my experience you know working with so many pe- people over the years here's what i found to be helpful we have regular conversations that have to do with values, life experiences. Here's where I'm coming from. What about you? And I think w- as clinicians, we have to be very intentional about that. Um, that's how you build rapport, build trust, do the relational work. Um, and so much of the work that we need to be doing is relational. Yeah. Um, and, and this is like the, the beginning of that. curious what, what tends to come up for you when we talk about these things like when we really dive into these topics that I know we acknowledge at the beginning can be really really heavy um, you know I'm, what what 
what comes up for you around these conversations? I feel it in my gut. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, we all experience um, these, you know, complex emotions in our bodies in different ways. Um, for me, it fires me up, you know. Mm. Um, there's a lot of work to do, and I've been privileged to be put in spaces where I can contribute to something and, and, and make it go better. Mm. You know, one of the best parts of, of the work that I get to do is, is those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, getting on the phone and taking the time and being able to hear a parent's perspective on what it is like to be a parent of a child who is suicidal. Mm. We sit and we talk about that. We just pause and hold that space. Um, and those moments of connection. You know, I was, I was thinking about this earlier, actually, yesterday, um, in conversations with parents. This idea that we might not be able to change the symptoms today, mm-hmm. right? This idea that we don't always have the immediate cure. But while we are working towards that, every connection we make should ease suffering. That's a big part of our call. Uh, as physicians, as clinicians, healthcare providers, especially in mental health, we should intentionally work towards easing suffering. Mm. And we do that through connection um, and witnessing with parents what they're going through or witnessing with our patients what it's like to be them right now. Mm. Um, that work can always be done. And, and we should be doing that. So I, this is where my mind and heart go. Yeah. I want to also make sure that in this conversation we acknowledge that um, here in the Twin Cities, I mean, this topic has obviously been extremely at the forefront over the last year to two years. Um, most recently, the death of Amir Locke um, in Minneapolis is, is bringing all this you know, right back to the surface. Um, anything that you want to say about that and, and potentially... I mean, do, do you see ripples, ripple effects of things like that happening right here in our community with the people that you're interacting with, you know, in, in, in your line of work? It, it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of acknowledging, recognizing trauma. Yeah. Um, you know, this is that situation where it's it's everyday life for so many people where, you know, I haven't begun to you know heal from the previous grief and trauma and now here's another one Mm -hmm. you know um it tries the resiliency of the communities and you know there's this this part where when we're thinking about trauma we have to understand re-triggering and so there is this very human um, experience where when there's a trauma, when there's a grief and a loss, it brings up previously unhealed traumas, griefs, and losses. And that's the compounding and that, that, that people are experiencing. And you know, that's the moment we're in again, um, where the community is in grief and trauma. And you, know, you can't say that it wasn't, you know, it, it, so this is another wave of that. Um, and for those who are, you know, doing the work, it's 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 one of those things where 
you know, you have to not lose sight of why all this matters. Um, we have to anchor into our sources of resiliency, um, our areas of, 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 you know, emotional and spiritual support. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the things that keep us? What are the things that hold us? Um, now more than ever, we need to anchor into that so that we can keep moving towards change. Yeah. What anchors and holds you? You're going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, um, you know, family, family anchors me and holds me. Mm-hmm. Um, spirituality holds me. Um, you know, literally anchors me throughout the day. You know, mm-hmm. as, as a Muslim, I, I observe prayer five times a day. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, these are, they last a few minutes each, yeah. but it's this, this concept where, you know, every, every couple, every few hours, you break whatever you're doing, you stop what you're doing, and you are in, you know, deep reflection, and you get to a still point, mm-hmm. and you kind of transcend the, the chaos of the moment, connect with something that goes beyond this, um, you know, th- this, this very ephemeral space that we have and then finish that go right back into the chaos but having anchored so you feel stronger going back into you have a clearer vision why what you have to do matters Um, you know I feel that actually you know and so I think between family and spirituality these two things anchor me deeply and as we wrap up here what what gives you hope around all the things that we've talked about here today. I mean, I think since time immemorial, there has always been struggle. There has always been striving. Um, And I think that we're in a generation where we have the means, we have the, the, the ability to do really good work and and move towards a more just, more equitable society. And the fact that we're having these conversations in more mainstream spaces, mm-hmm. you know, really heralds that we can do this work. Um, and, and, and I just kind of try to imagine myself in the, in the bigger scheme of things. You know, every generation will ha- is going to have its struggles and they have to keep, you know, uh, you know, fighting the good fight or, mm-hmm. you know, making good trouble, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I think to be part of that is really important. That itself gives resiliency. Um, and, and, you know, it's one foot in front of the other. I don't know. There's not another way to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. One moment at a time. Yes. Well, I just want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to have this conversation um, and, and for all the work that you're doing. And is there anything else that you want to add that that we didn't talk about? I I think just for listeners out there, you know, for folks who are, you know, struggling or or have loved ones that you're worried about, um, you know, reach out. Um, You know, we're here. 
we are we are motivated and dedicated and, and you know the things that we're talking about these are the conversations we're also having you know behind closed doors and when we're in our you know patient meetings and such so the work is happening um, reach out we're here and um, you know keep telling your stories keep bringing your full self to everything you do all of that matters you matter and that's a trust that we have a responsibility to uphold and honor. I want to once again thank Dr. Cotter for joining me on this episode. So many things that, that I know that I am taking away from this conversation, and, and I hope that you found it insightful and useful as well. Um, if, if you have any feedback, any comments, any questions about anything that we talked about on this episode or any previous episodes, always love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on uh, social media. I'll put my, my Instagram handle in the uh, show notes for this episode where you can reach out to me anytime. Um, as always, uh, deeply grateful to each and every one of you for taking the time to listen. And I look forward to connecting soon. And we'll have another episode out next week. So be gentle with yourself out there. And we will talk soon.